No. <laughs> she said, I can't believe you're going to deliver a sermon with that in your hand. She knows I talk with my hands. So it's going to be like if you order the, the what is it, a CD? What is it? It's a CD, is that what it is? I don't know. I'm still back at eight tracks. But I go like this. And then, so anyway, we'll see. I think, uh, you know, it's God's service, and he's in charge, and he allowed the cold and or the breakage. It's part of the agenda that he has to always make sure that my humility stays in check, as that's one of the battles that I have, as most of you know. So the title of my sermon this morning, well, welcome visitors. I know we have some. And the title of my sermon this morning is The List. I'm using the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. You'll find that in the insert printed in the New, American, um, in the New King James. We have so many different variations here, so many different translations that I'd like us to be all on the same word so we know what we're talking about and we can have a commonality about this. There is no outline. I didn't fully pull this thing together until yesterday, so I really believe God is going to have to manage this for me. And so my prayer is that you should all be anointed by a sermon that God has prepared for you, and he's simply going to allow me to attempt to deliver it. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I once saw a t-shirt that said, the last thing I want to do is hurt you, but it is still on the list. (laughs) You either have to laugh, cry, or say amen to that sentiment because we have had our list or have been on someone else's list. See, those lists exist because relationships, even relationships in the church, like everything else in this fallen world, break. And we get hurt by or we hurt other people. It is one of the unfortunate universal patterns of life, a pattern that no one, I repeat, no one escapes. It touches us in almost every phase and every arena of life, including the church. And Jesus knew that sinful, broken people would be hurt by and would hurt other sinful, broken people He knew we would struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness. Hurting others comes with life, and some are better at that than others. Just like some people seem to hurt others more easily, there are also some who are more easily hurt than others. They tend to be more fragile. What is the outcome of all of this? Bitterness, anger, and lots and lots of lists. And Jesus doesn't want us carrying those lists. He doesn't want us to be on those lists, and he tells us how to deal with those who have hurt us and have been hurt by us. And I know you are perceptive and discerning enough to figure out where you are in that scenario. You know whether you are the offending party or the one carrying around the bitterness and the unforgiveness. I dare say that at this point, early in this message, you already have a person or situation in mind where you have offended or you have been offended. You have already a name and a face 
flash through your mind because you carry it with you every day of your life. You know, as we listen to what Jesus says, remember he is in the process of delivering a crash course on discipleship, telling the disciples what it means and what it requires to take up their cross daily and follow him. We know that the path of discipleship is characterized by self-denial, by suffering, by an unsettled, unwavering faith and humility. Humility expresses itself in selfless service to others and in forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. And both of these are necessary to maintain unity within the church. Now, Jesus, in our text, has just finished teaching the disciples how to handle sin in the church. And that discussion concerning sin in the church brought questions to the minds of the disciples, especially Peter. And so in Matthew 18, 21, our text begins, And then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, Peter asked a legitimate question. You've got to give him credit for recognizing the need to forgive and be forgiven. And knowing Peter like we do, it almost goes without saying that Peter probably had a list And it is highly likely he was on somebody else's list. He had that in mind when he asked the question. Now, will you consider the very immediate recent debate the disciples had had about who's the greatest in the kingdom? You might think that maybe some forgiveness was necessary among friends. And so this comment may have very well been in order. And in asking the question, Peter tried to be generous and super spiritual by offering to forgive an offending person up to seven times. That was double what most of your rabbis were teaching, plus one more for good measure. You know, Peter was trying to appear gracious. Peter had to make up some lost ground with Jesus. Remember, he had a few confrontations with the Lord. He participated in who is the greatest in the kingdom fiasco. Secondly, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter's lips got the best of him, God himself had to intervene and say, listen to my son. And then the praise that Jesus heaped on him on chapter 16 was erased by a stinging rebuke of setting his mind on men's interests rather than God. And Jesus had to say to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. And so now Peter wanted to show Jesus his mind was on God's interest. He wanted to go back to that blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, part of life again. And that's why he said, probably with a big smile on his face, Jesus, when it comes to forgiveness, this forgiveness stuff, don't you think seven times is enough? Well, Peter's suggestion, Peter's question didn't go over very well. We say, poor Peter. And we say to that, poor us. See, the standards for God's kingdom people are high, higher than most of us like. Peter wanted to know, where is the line? How far do we have to go? What is the standard? And all of us want to know the limits, expectations, and boundaries that are placed on us. You know, for example, when you're in school, the professor, the teacher gives you an assignment to do a research paper, and we want to know what are the requirements, how many words, how many pages, how many footnotes, how many sources. We want to do enough, but we don't want to go overboard. 
You tell the kids to clean the bathroom or their room. They want to know whether it means to pick up the junk or are we talking about vacuuming, dusting, disinfecting? Peter's question is one we should be interested in because we all struggle with forgiveness. We want to know when something becomes too much of an offense to forgive. How many times is too many times? In Peter's mind, in our mind, and that of the religious people in people's day, there had to be a limit. There just has to be. When it comes to forgiveness, looking for limits and boundaries are questions of law and of fallen human nature and not of grace. Human nature and legalistic hearts keep count. Grace doesn't. Grace doesn't ask if this is the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh time. Grace simply forgives. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I'm good at it. The only thing I know I'm good at is hurting others and needing to ask for forgiveness. I'm not saying this forgiveness stuff is easy, but what I am saying, what Jesus said, we are to forgive. So then Matthew 18.22 states, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a lot. But understand, in giving a number, Jesus was not setting a limit, but making a point about grace and forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that can be quantified or counted. It's not an event to be cataloged. Forgiveness, more than a singular act, is a process, an intentional process. It takes me more than one round of working through forgiveness, especially if the offense is repeated or is continuous in relation to the same person. You forgive only to find that you have to forgive again because the hurt resurfaces or in our pride and anger, we dig it back up and breathe fresh life into our hurt. It can be like that old whack-a-mole game with the rubber mallet and moles that pop up from a different place, and once you beat it down, it just simply pops up from another place. I can tell you, the person, that they are forgiven, but I have found that that is simply the first step in forgiving. I still wrestle within my own heart. Things happen that bring the hurt to mind, and all the feelings flood to the surface. Listen, we must choose forgiveness over and over and over until we come to the place where the heart gradually catches up with the head and forgiveness becomes part of us and enters deep into the wounded feelings. We will then at last be able to say, it is finished. No more wrestling, just healing. How do we get there? Where do I find the strength to get to the point of forgiveness? Why should I even try? Or why should I even want to get there? See, these are the questions Jesus answers. And as he does so many times, Jesus tells us a parable, a story, to help us understand and discover where we are in this process. So then Matthew 18, 23 to 7, Jesus continues. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. 
The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will repay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. The servant in this story owes an enormous debt to the king. And people have tried to determine the amount, suggesting that perhaps it was in the billions of dollars, but there is really no way of knowing. We know simply that it represented an astronomical number. And the king, knowing the debt was owed, he called for the debts to be paid. This man had no hope of paying this debt. He owed a debt from which there was no escape, and the debt never decreased. It only increased. And with each passing day, the debt grew more and more and more. He fell on his knees, imploring, begging, and pleading for more time. More time? He wrongly believed that he could pay the debt with a little more time and effort. But it was not going to happen. It could not happen. What did happen was the unthinkable. This incalculable debt was forgiven by an immeasurable grace. The master showed pity and forgave him the debt. What an amazing story. You know, for those of us who are believers, it is our story. We're all God's debtors. Romans 3.23 states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every sin we commit is debt to God. And listen, it is not a debt to an equal. The seriousness of the debt increases with the greatness of the one to whom the debt is owed. And none of us will ever know the depth of our sin and the enormity of our debt until we see him. Then we will understand the ugliness of our sin and how great a miracle grace and salvation really is. And as the servant in the parable, we too are unable to pay our debt. Romans 3.20 states, and tells us why, because by the flesh... Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You know, the law that was followed by the Jews, as well as today's works theology, will not save. You cannot pay your debt. But listen, the debt must be paid. We have a gracious and forgiving God who grants forgiveness to those who seek it and who fall on his mercy, and there is no other way for the debt to be erased and our sins forgiven. But when someone forgives, the debt is not forgotten. It is not magically erased. The one who has been wronged is the one to whom the debt is owed, and he has to agree to take the loss and pay the price. Well, God paid our debt. He gave his son for us, who in turn gave his life for us as an atoning sacrifice for all who believe and repent. Now, let's go back to Romans 3.23, which is a verse we all know, and we've all memorized it. And let's read what comes afterwards. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay. 23 to 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly 
as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I wish I had time to consider with you these verses word by word. You know, essentially, it tells us that we have been forgiven. And to some of you who think that the amount of sin debt you have occurred is too great for God's grace, you're mistaken. There is no debt too great. And to think that way is to disparage and diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful that God has not dealt with me solely based on law, that he was not that I was not given what I deserved and earned. He deals with me and you according to his mercy and his grace. And so should we. You have been forgiven a debt much greater than we will ever be called to forgive. We will never be asked to give more grace than has already been given. And we have been forgiven much. And that should be life-changing. He takes our sin. And in salvation, he not only takes our sin, but he also gives his spirit. And that makes us new. And part of that new is the ability, the power, and the desire to forgive. And forgiveness reflects the character of God. And because of that, forgiven people are called to be forgiving. Now, this is something the man in the story did not do. Matthew 18, 28 to 30 continues. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. He went and found someone on his list who owed him a small debt. It equaled a few months' salary for the average working man. It was a price that when you consider what he had just been forgiven, you would think he could have just written off his own books, but he didn't. And rather than forgive, when the man cried for mercy, he choked the man and threw him into prison. He did not extend the same grace he was given. And when we read that, we say, how horrible, what a jerk. He was given so much and forgiven for so much, and he refused to forgive for so little. Don't we make the same mistake ourselves? We undervalue our debts and we overvalue the debts of others. We think little of our offenses, but we think much about the offenses of others. It is a pride and an arrogance. When we fail to realize that is that unforgiveness and the accompanying bitterness comes with a price. The one we are angry with is not the one who pays the price. We do. Go back to the story, Matthew 18, 31 to 34. So when his fellow servants saw that he had, what he had done, they were grieved. And they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called them, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry. 
and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. You know, as chastening for his sin, his sin of unforgiveness, the unforgiven slave was handed over to the torturers. Listen, not executioners. Handed over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. That is, until he had a change of heart and forgive his offending brother, which is what the king wanted to have repaid. To grant kindness and mercy in exchange for the kindness and mercy given him. That was his debt now to the king. But this man showed no joy. He showed no gratitude. He could not enjoy what had just happened to him. He could not rejoice in the freedom of his forgiveness because he was too focused on the debt owed to him. I think what many people fail to understand is that this long-seated unforgiveness, always lingering below the surface, not only consumes us, but it imprisons us. In his best-selling book, The Telling Room, Michael Paterniti shares a true story that he witnessed when he was visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Every day when he was in the village, he saw a very old woman walking with her cane, struggling up a steep road to get to the local cemetery. It was said that at her slow pace, the walk from her home to the cemetery and back again took about six hours of her day. What grief inspired her difficult daily walk? Was she driven by sorrow over a departed child or a deceased husband, the love of her life? No. She was driven by bitter hatred. Her arch enemy was buried in that cemetery, and so rain or shine, the old woman walked up the hill every day to her enemy's gravesite just to spit on it one more time. The one who hurt that woman is dead. You, they could not apologize. They couldn't ask for forgiveness. They couldn't get things set right. But it didn't matter. The old woman wasted much of her life because of unforgiveness. The one who was dead controlled the living. You know, there are people who have and will hurt you that are no longer here or may never ask for forgiveness. They could care less, or they could care less about desiring to set things right. But you can still forgive. If not, they are still controlling and hurting you with your permission and by your hand. See, this woman is not free, but in chains, because she is consumed with bitterness and hate. Now, you may not take a physical journey to spit on the grave or on the face of someone who hurt you, but you take a mental, emotional journey, and that's a miserable way to live. There is a price to pay for unforgiveness and bitterness. It costs you. It costs you time that you could have spent cultivating and enjoying other people and other things, but you can't. Unforgiveness does generally hurt the person you're angry with, but it does always hurt you. Consider in closing that there is a price attached to unforgiveness and bitterness, and that is your freedom and your joy. 
It not only hurts you, but it hurts all those around you. It bleeds into your other relationships, your marriage, your friends, your work, your church, your children. You may not see it, but they do. They pay the price for your pride. And the man in this parable was placed in prison and handed over to the torturers until he could pay back what was owed. Then the part we would like to forget and wish was not there. That comes in verse 35. It states, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. Listen, for that person unwilling to forgive, refusing to deal with the hurt, God will turn you over to the torturers. You will be imprisoned because of your own hate. You will suffer loss and pain until you give what is owed, until you do what is right and forgive. One who does not forgive is is at the very least lacking in godly character and spiritual maturity. And at worst, he's demonstrating that he is without Christ. Forgiveness of others is not a condition of salvation, but it is a consequence of it. So listen, forgiveness is vital to that lost person, the one who is separated from God because God knows that they don't have eternal life. They need to be forgiven. There is a massive sin debt that they cannot repay, and God, in his mercy, has made forgiveness possible through Christ. Tell them that. But also forgiveness is vital to believers. If you are the one who has offended, seek forgiveness. If you are the offended, you need to give forgiveness. Because you have been forgiven. Yes, it's going, it may mean the cost is absorbed by you, but the cost of our sins was absorbed by Christ. But in doing so, you will find that you are walking the road of humility and self-denial, and that is very well the path of discipleship. Amen? You know, the altars are open. I want you to stay. We do have a song that has great meaning, great words. Let that be your worship as we leave, and take those words when you leave the place. Amen?